Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I guess when I was younger, I, I had this kind of zealot mentality. I remember kind of being kind of preachy in like kindergarten and telling the kids that they were going to all die in Armageddon because that's what I knew if they did, if they celebrated Halloween. I remember there was this Halloween party that my parents were pretty careful about not exposing me to that kind of thing at school. When at a young age, they would pull me out of class or whatever. So I wouldn't be exposed to it. But there was a couple of times, where, you know, teachers would have a surprise holiday party and I would be unfiltered and speak my mind. So I remember kind of standing out that way and telling kids, you know, scaring them that they would, you know, burn and in, in Armageddon and getting my parents being upset. Like, you can't do that. You can't, you know, share your faith as, as wildly like that at school. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you? What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are? Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them? How they got through? And how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey beautiful souls. You know when I was a little kid I went to Sunday school every Sunday. I'd get up and I'd brush my hair and put on a smart dress and shoes and I'd go and spend a couple of hours at the church hall with my sister and all the other kids. We'd sing and we'd learn stories of the Bible and we'd do art and craft. My parents didn't go to church. They thought they should give us the option of learning about Jesus as they thought we should learn that those things existed in the world. And so by the time I was 12, I was told I could decide whether or not I wanted to continue each week. I said no, I didn't want to continue. 
It never sat well with me. I felt uneasy about everything. The idea that by following a bunch of rules, you go to heaven, whether you were kind to others or not, whether you accepted everybody as equal or not, wasn't necessarily a part of the equation. I saw and I heard the prejudices around me and it didn't make sense. And in this particular church, there was no dancing allowed. And how could God not want anyone to dance? So I left and it wasn't hard because it wasn't my parents' thing anyway. But what about if you're born into a family that is completely entrenched in a very controlling religion where from the moment you're born, the rules that your parents have decided to abide by become your rules also. But you didn't choose it. You didn't have any say in it and it affects everything, every part of your life, your time, your friends, your social life, your beliefs, your soul. You don't fit in with the other kids. You can't play, celebrate, join in with those outside of the church. The rules, boundaries and control are all consuming. This week I am chatting with Luis and he grew up as part of the Jehovah's Witness Church He calls his experience like being in a cult. The control and fear are overwhelming. The fear that you are going to hell is an absolute constant from his very first memories. So much fear, so much guilt. And what happens when you realize that you're gay and that is just not an option for you in the eyes of the church? Please join me in hearing Louise's story. Thank you so much, Louise, for, for chatting to me today. Tell me whereabouts you grew up and tell me a little bit about yourself as a, as a little kid. Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's an honor, honor to be here. Fan of the podcast. So that's a great question. I actually, the first 12 years of my life, I grew up in a small town in New Mexico named Alamogordo. And from there, we moved when I was about 12, 13, we moved to Dallas, Texas, and we're there about two years and then moved back to New York where I was born. Uh, We moved back to to be closer to family, to grandparents. But the reason for the moves was because my parents were very active as uh, quote unquote, what you would consider kind of domestic missionaries for the Jehovah's Witness Church. And so they would move to what was considered where the need was greater to have more people that were willing to go out and spread the message, you know? So in, in terms of where I was born in Buffalo and then later raised in Poughkeepsie, in contrast, Alamogordo, New Mexico, very small town, still very small town. Um, didn't have a lot of uh, Spanish speaking Jehovah's Witnesses at that time. And so they volunteered to pick up our family and kind of leave all the um, extended family in New York and, my first memories of, you know, being alive were in this very small desert town of Alamogordo, New Mexico. I consider myself to be from New York because by the time I was 15, we had moved back to Poughkeepsie. We're back near cousins. We're back near my grandparents. So I always consider myself a New Yorker that just spent some time in the South <laughs> as a younger person. And, and what was your mom like? What do you remember of your mom growing up? At first, ironically, my mom always had the house filled with people. She was always someone that really enjoyed having people over. We would have guest speakers or guests, what any other church would call a deacon or priest come on Sundays from another neighboring town. And she was always on the list to feed them and then would invite, you know, half the congregation over. She was always very loving and giving my early memories of other people would always love to have lots of people over would have people crashing on her couch would just basically give her the shirt off her back. Not really sure what changed. We don't, me and my brothers have talked about this. I'm the youngest of three boys. I'm not sure what changed, but that did a complete 180. I would say by the time we got back to Poughkeepsie, that time we got back to New York when I was 15 or 16, she became the polar opposite, very cold, very focused on her career. She did really well for herself as a professor and just kind of moved up that, you know, on the adjunct level, said that she wanted to teach at Marist College one day, said that she would teach at Vassar College one day, 
And sure enough, she found herself on the adjunct level at these, you know, at these colleges teaching English as a second language and then American Sign Language. So super brilliant, super motivated, but there was a shift there where that kind, loving person became someone that didn't really trust people or, you know, kind of kind of had this mentality of family first and not letting anybody in. So that's mm-hmm. a mystery I'm still trying to figure out, but it was it was a very stark change. Hmm, interesting. And tell me a bit about your dad when you were a little kid. So my father uh, growing up was always, uh, and still to this day, uh, when I do get to see him or speak to him, very gregarious, very loving, very, very funny individual. He was on Broadway in the early 70s on a play called Hair that um, was a huge, like, you know, you know, anti-policy, anti-the man kind of hippie-ish. Huge, huge um, play and, and kind of huge spectacle. And mm-hmm. I was able to go to his 25th year anniversary of Hair in New York City um, years later, I think 25 years or 30 years, but he was always very friendly. Gregarious made made friends wherever he he went, um, and what was a man of faith took took the religion seriously, but would always find ways to kind of circumvent or bend the rules, even though he was a deacon or an elder. You know, for instance, you know, when I was ten years old, I always remember this. He uh, took me to the video store to rent a film. And he wanted to rent Robocop, which was rated R and, and forbidden in, in the church. You don't watch rated R movies, but he was like, eh, you know, you're old enough. And I thought I was, I was like single-handedly horrified, but also I thought, wow, that was pretty cool. You know, like yeah. my old man is showing me my first like dirty, not dirty film, but violent movie. Yeah. But he would always break the little rules like that. And like, we would catch him watching like platoon or, so it would start with little things like, like with films and things like that. And he was just always kind of, you know, would always bend the rules. And, you know, as, as time progressed too, and he got more responsibility with the church, he always kind of had that little bit of an edge, you know, where, you know, we were told not to watch violent movies, but he always had his little, his little vices. And sad to say, he didn't really change. He's always kind of had the same kind of gregarious personality, but you know, the, the two of them, she really kind of ran the show, I guess. So if she was upset, then no one was having a good day. And that, and he would kind of conform to that. Now, you know, so much has happened since me and my ex-wife left Portland. We left New York in 2006, uh, went to Portland, Oregon. I was involved in film. We had our two little ones. We were divorced in 2014. And that's really when the relationship changed you know me and her grew closer as co-parents and kind of decided to raise our kids a certain way um she still practices religion but is more on the liberal more open-minded end of that and let's you know the kids are able to use their conscience on certain things but my parents didn't really accept her or like her they definitely didn't accept or like the fact that you know i came out of the closet you know at a at a later age and my brothers both have left the church as well. So the relationship with them is not very good or strong right now. Um, yeah. They've chosen to, you know, in the Jehovah's Witness Church, when someone is excommunicated or leaves, the family will completely banish them and cut them off. Ironically, I was never excommunicated formally. Um, I, I did what's called fading when you just, you know, they, they have to meet with you formally to excommunicate you or you have to disassociate yourself, which I haven't done um, under the advice of some ex-Jehovah's Witnesses that are lawyers that told me on a legal standpoint to protect yourself, don't ever do it formally, just to stop going. Yeah. And so they, uh, on the book somewhere, on some piece of paper, I guess I'm still legally a Jehovah's Witness, even though I don't believe any of the, any of the fundamentals of that religion at all. Yeah. So when were you first aware of being a part of Jehovah's Witness? I guess when I was younger, I, I had this kind of zealot mentality. I remember kind of being kind of preachy in like kindergarten and telling the kids that they were going to all die in Armageddon because that's what I knew. 
um, if they did, if they celebrated Halloween. I remember there was this Halloween party that my parents were pretty careful about not exposing me to that kind of thing at school. When at a young age, they would pull me out of class or whatever. So I wouldn't be exposed to it. But there was a couple of times, where, you know, teachers would do a surprise, you know, as a normal teacher would have a surprise holiday party and I would be unfiltered and speak my mind. So I remember kind of standing out that way and telling kids, you know, scaring them that they would, you know, burn and in Armageddon and getting my parents being upset. Like, you can't do that. You can't, you know, share your faith as, as wildly like that at school. But then I, I calmed down. And then, you know, as we got older, I was kind of like my father still am very gregarious and made a lot of friends and naturally your friends at school want to see you outside of school. But I always had to come up with an excuse as to, I can't go to your sleepover. I can't go to the roller rink with you because you know, you're not a witness. And believe it or not, a lot of my friends stuck with me throughout, you know, my, my school career as well. We just found ways to associate without <laughs> my parents knowing staying mm -hmm. after school or, you know, you just, it's amazing how kids will find, ways to be happy and that's one thing that I've always noticed when I've interacted or I've seen other young witness kids is there's just kind of like this uh little wink wink that they give to each other like yeah we're, we're doing the right thing but you know it's very rare to find a child that is a thousand percent in and then some some are but there's always going to be that kind of doubt because you know the rest of what you're exposed to is not doing that so there's always a natural tendency to, to be curious yeah. And I, I'm wondering if that was just quite confusing, though, as a, a small kid, because you're so sort of entrenched in what's happening with your parents in the church. And then you're told, well, you can't go to school and you can't say it to everybody. You can't stand up and do that because that that's not going to work. So as a little kid, it must have been like, well, why not? Yeah. If it's, oh, yeah. If it's, All if the, it's the right thing, if this is the right thing, if this is... Mm -hmm. Why can't I stand on a, a chair and tell everybody yeah. they're all going yeah. to hell? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 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 there was there were certain ways that they would encourage to preach at school, you know, to give a witness, uh, as as the Bible says, you know, you give a witness, you testify. But I was just, you know, as a younger kid not having a filter, I had to learn to kind of, you know, not do that. But it there came a point very early on, I I was caught on to this around third grade I remember we moved from one I moved we moved from one part of town to another and I had to leave my elementary school to go to the other school in the other district and I kind of had this mindset of I'm not doing the witness thing here there's not you know eight years old I'm like this is a kind of a fresh start for me I'm not going to bring this up I was kind of smart enough to bring that up and I think my middle brother uh Emmanuel might have put that on my head, you know, subtly. But I just remember going, okay, fresh start. No one knows my background. Um, I'll continue to make excuses as to why to not hang out. Ironically, our house, our new house was across the street from the new elementary school. So kids naturally would want to come over and ride bikes. And there was some, at some point, my parents just kind of gave in with little things like that, you know, as long as they could see us playing across the street or whatever. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. I'm like, the kids aren't going to stop coming by. We've got to find some kind of balance here. So I, I, I got pretty smart on how to um, kind of live the double standard, I guess, from an early yeah. age. And what were the things that you weren't allowed to do as a kid? So right off the bat, any holiday was forbidden. So Christmas was a big one. We weren't allowed to celebrate Christmas. Valentine's Day off the table, Halloween off the table. I always loved Halloween. I always loved the idea of it. I always loved going to school on Halloween and seeing my friends dress up. I always thought that was so cool. Christmas, you know, my parents did do their best to kind of compensate for us not celebrating by having like a gift day. Um, it's something that we've tried to do with our kids now, but they're they're more about experience gifting as opposed to, you know, tangible gifts. Kids are just different nowadays. They want the experience and not the the toy, you know? So birthdays were out of the question as well. Um, we didn't celebrate our own birthdays, let alone 
anybody else's. So anything like holidays or birthdays, completely off the table. And then extracurricular activities like joining school sports or things like that were off the table as well. Although some witness kid, kids' parents allowed that, you know, for health reasons, it was encouraged that kids don't do that because of the uh, bad association, as they called it. What is the reason behind that? Because they don't, I mean, why, why can't you play sport, for example? It all comes down to, yeah, it all comes down to, um, there's a a scripture that they always use that bad association spoils useful habits. So the more you associate with non-believers, the more tempted you'll be to get involved with non, you know, into what non-believers get involved with, you know, and that's kind Mm -hmm. of a silly thing at a younger age, because, you know, there's not many kids in little league and t-ball that are into drinking and drugs and having sex at like 10, 11 years old. I mean, there's instances of that, obviously, but it's not the norm. I guess that's kind of, they want that program into you as a younger person, because, you know, when you get, and for me, things got really wild when junior high and puberty set in, forget about it. That's when I was like, yeah, really screw any of the rules. I definitely want to venture out and see what I'm made of. So I think the predictive program, I don't want to say predictive programming, but that programming at an early age kind of prepares you for being a teenager and not being involved in, in such things. Yeah. And so what did you actually feel in yourself when you're being told there's all these things you can't do because every everybody else is doing them? How does it make you feel? Is it like, do you just take it on board because that's all you've ever known or do you feel suffocated or? It's a mixture of, you know, when I, as, as I got older, I always felt something was very off about it. You know, we're, we're taught to believe that eventually Jesus Christ would come back in a fire arm again, and anybody that wasn't a witness or was not deemed righteous would be destroyed. And I used to love going to the, the, mar- the market with my mom, you know, and help pack, bag the groceries and, you know, choose goodies. And I remember one time standing in line, it's like nine or 10 years old. And at, at that time, it felt like a huge line a lot of people, lots of different lines. And I was looking at all of the people, just, just looking at people, you know, of all different shapes and sizes. And it kind of hit me. I'm like, these people are going to die if they don't become witnesses. And it, it really hit me strongly. Like this, that doesn't seem fair and it doesn't seem tangible or right. And that's when at that moment, a lot of those doubts started coming in. So I started to question and then find my own ways to, to get things done. I mean, I never, there was a period when I would, when I would sneak out at night when I was like 13 to, to meet up with friends and things like that, got caught red-handed doing that. But me- mentality wise, I always felt like something was off. So I wouldn't push back. I would just kind of find my, my way around it. And I had yeah. two older brothers that were culprits as well. So they, we would know we would, especially my middle brother, the one that was closer to me, he would always cover for me or give me rides places because he was the older one. So yeah, we found our way around things. Yeah. And so within that community, that church community, were you having a lot to do with a lot of other adults or were you raised just by your parents or was it you're getting raised by the church? Uh, Mostly my parents they were pretty good about not, it wasn't a village mentality with us. They, they kept family business to family business. You know, I was friends with other witness kids as well. And their parents had degrees of strictness and severity too. There were some witness kids that their parents were very lax, would let them have violent video games, unsupervised cable television, or, you know, what we call worldly non-witness kids come over and those were the kids that we always gravitated to. Like they're witnesses, but the loophole is you're going to have a lot of fun at so-and-so's house because it's kind of like a free-for-all. But no, not a village mentality. I mean, there were adults that I still care about and love that are witnesses that knew me from a very young age. And they would serve as like secondary kind of parents. But my parents took, took things as we got older to another level a lot of, you know, guilt and suspicion and blame. Uh, my my oldest brother got into a lot of trouble, um, served some time uh, in jail and prison and things like that. And 
I think that kind of made them extra strict. And so me and my middle brother really caught the brunt of that, of the overbearing. And I think that's why they did so many moves and try to be so controlling. So as we got older, things got, they realized they were starting to lose their grip and then things got a little more intense, but they tried to keep everything kind of family centric and quiet. I, I wonder what happened with your brother then, because being the eldest child, often you're quite compliant and you're really going along with parents that, mm-hmm. you know, have a, a lot of rules. So it's interesting that he was the one that kind of went off the rails a bit. Man. Yeah, I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, his upbringing. He's my half brother. So he, my mom was previously married. So I never met his actual, his other father. But I think he 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 bonked heads a lot with my father. My father adopted mm-hmm. him and it was a stepfather and just bonked heads and, you know, was an older child when this religion came into his life and remembers being pulled away from Buffalo and New York, going to this bumble bumble town in the middle of New Mexico. So I think a lot of that anger kind of resonated with him as he got older. Yeah. And I, I can I can see why that was a struggle for him and why, you know, when he was 18, he was out, he was gone. Yeah. So by the time you get to high school, you're obviously figuring out a way to navigate all these things around your religion. What other things were you struggling with at that time? Um, ironically, when I went to, when we moved to Dallas, I was in, in high school age. So I, my parents decided to do homeschool for me. So I didn't have the traditional high school experience. However, I did get a job fairly young. So I was associating and hanging out with other young, other young kids. They figured that they would protect me by not sending me to school, but would let me get a job at Chuck E. Cheese when I was younger. And that was my first job as a teenager. And of course, you know, being the gregarious self that I was, I made friends there. And I think I was really struggling with, you know, sexually, I, you know, sexuality issues, um, and then also social issues as well. Because at that time, as an older teenager, you're, now you're really starting to meet other teenagers. Some of them are really strict. I mean, my, my best friend growing up in New York, his, his father was way up there like my father there. They served as elders in the same group. But he was very straight-laced, you know, and he always viewed me as a rebel. But I really got along better with his younger brother, who was two years younger because the two of us would get into things together like a six pack of beer at 17 or you know renting a a radar movie that had nudity in it or just always looking for ways to kind of work the system Uh, I always really gravitated to that but could could really play both parts very well I guess a lot of guilt you're dealing with kind of living a double life and you know I always thought man if I could just (laughs) if I could just be myself if I could just like have people over and have my parents meet them and, and realize that they're good people. They're not bad people. I never thought that anybody that outside, outside the religion was bad. And they'll never come out and say it, but that's what it's alluded to. These people are no good. You shouldn't be hanging around them because your faith is at stake and your everlasting life in the kingdom of God is at stake. And it's just a bunch of hoopla yeah. to control you. And I think that as I became an adult, I always felt emotionally about 10, 15 years behind. You know, when I decided to leave the religion, I was meeting, uh, you know, people in college and things like that. And the way I would react to certain situations was not the way another adult would or a young adult would mentality wise. So I've had to kind of catch up because, um, yeah. but sheltered most of my life. So when you're sheltered, it doesn't really prepare you for the real world. Yeah. And I feel like there's so much guilt and fear, like everything mm-hmm. is everything is guilt and fear in that situation, isn't it? And so I guilt. feel almost feel like you must shut shut down parts of your brain in that situation because you're so entrenched in that fear of doing the wrong thing and there's so many rules and I think it must just change the way your brain works. I'm pretty sure it did. At 23 is when I really started, you know, witnesses have the Watchtower farm and then they have the Watchtower. I'm not sure how it is anymore, but at that time when you were 19, you could go and volunteer and live 
you know, they pay your room and board, but you kind of work in the factory printing the article, you know, the magazines and all that. But it's kind of like a college experience. You can go between the ages of 19 and 35. At that time, it was only men that were allowed to go. So you can imagine you get a bunch of pent up 19, 20 year old virgins together under one roof. I mean, you're just begging for this kind of party atmosphere, right? And I remember yeah. I never, my family was was super well known and had a lot of connections, but I was always discouraged from applying to go to what they called Bethel. But I found a workaround because you can go and be a day a day Bethelite. You can go and work on the site and shower and spend the night if you want to. Uh, on the site there and I had at that time had made lots of friends other young men that were there full time and we would just we would work <laughs> work during the day and there's a rage rage party at night and that's when I kind of like okay I can I can tolerate this because there's other people like me but still I mean you're you're showing up to Sunday meeting and you're also running the show you're running the sound and you're running the putting up the stage in a certain way and sometimes you're doing that, you know, hungover, or sometimes you're wondering if you overstepped the night before, you know, wondering about all these different things. And so it's kind of like a, a mental tug of war for sure. And that wasn't, you know, every weekend. But I remember one time in particular, <laughs> I went with my close friend and another close friend of ours. We went to this Celtic festival. I was like 24, 25, Celtic festival up in upstate New York somewhere. And we got, we had so much fun. I mean, had to spend the night in the car and had to come back down for service in the, the next day. And at one point I was running the sound booth and I just got overwhelmed with like, you know, was hung over, super hung over. And at the Celtic festival, Celtic festival, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. We ran into my friend's mom's Bible student who was studying the Bible with my friend's mom. And I remember her think, saying, I don't, I don't, didn't know you guys could go to these festivals. And I was like, oh boy, this one's going to come back. So I remember watching it all kind of unfold. Some of the elders had heard about us being there. They were watching me because I was so like hungover. And I told my friends, you know, we need to, we need to get out of here. Like, this isn't good. We're about to be found out. And sure enough, oh yeah, pulled into the back room one by one. How much did you drink? And we got, you know, we were smart enough to get our story straight before we were pulled into the judicial uh, scenario. But it's just not normal. It's not normal to live your life constantly looking over your shoulder, constantly, yeah. you know. And uh, I'm glad I was able to pull myself out of that. And, I, and that's why I wanted to talk about these stories because I know there's young people still dealing with that. And I can only imagine what it's been like during a pandemic and during the age of social media and all these influences being readily accessible now to these young folks. Uh, I can only imagine what it's like now. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes when something is so out of reach, this is banned, any kid's going to want to do it even more. Yeah. Like, you know, if somebody says you, you cannot do this, it's like, well, I'm going to do everything I can to do that. And it's just interesting, the psychology. There's no working around it. There's no education. You can't educate kids about anything if you're saying they just can't do it. Exactly. When you shut something right off, it's, it's never a great idea. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
So you're, you're in high school and then after high school, you're dealing with all of that. And at the same time, questioning your sexuality at that stage as well, or is that something that oh, comes yeah. later? Yeah, definitely, definitely questioning my sexuality had met other young men in the faith that were also questioning we wouldn't go to like we you know experimenting and like being normal you know young men uh would always come to a point but wouldn't wouldn't go all the way and then there was that extra stress and burden too and then a, a couple things were going on i you know you're not really allowed to date until you're ready to get married that's an extra pressure that they put on young people so you're having all these 19 20 year old couples getting married some really work out well some don't I had met my ex-wife uh, around that time. She was 20. Um, and she was the first one that was a lot more liberal than I had was used to. She had moved from Northern Idaho to New York, was kind of just seeing the world for the first time, working for a really cool family as a nanny. Uh, they would take me on their boat and fly me to Maine to see them um, when she would go up there. So it was this whole new world. So she kind of opened up this whole other aspect of the faith. You can still have faith, still be a good person. You can be liberal with your faith too. You can leave it up to your conscience. And witnesses always would say, leave things up to your conscience, but you know, but also follow the way. Otherwise, you know, you're gonna get it. So she was smarter than that and kind of brought that out in me. So we ended up getting married. And then for lots of other reasons, we became better co-parents as than, than husband and wife. But yeah, there was a certain time right before I met her, actually, that I remember I was working, I was going to school and also working at a lumberyard to support school. And I remember, I don't know why, I applied for a, a personal loan for like 10 grand and they called and said, you're approved, you got this loan. And I remember thinking, I'm going to take this money and I'm gone. Like, I'm, I don't know how or why, but I definitely was excited and, you know, about the potential of leaving. And it wasn't so much leaving the faith or my friends. It was just leaving this kind of extra hole that my parents thought that they were entitled to. So that was more of what I wanted to leave. It wasn't so much, it was definitely the religion, but I had really strong ties with the friends in that faith too. So it was a constant kind of tug of war, but I got lucky because once we, my parents didn't care for my wife and we were able to leave New York. And that's when things really changed when we picked up and moved to Portland, Oregon. And I was away from parents, childhood friends. That's when I really started to see the world a lot differently. And I swore to myself that I would never go preaching. Once I got to Portland, I would never do any of that again. I would support her and go to the church services once in a while but even that became a quick decision for me to to not go and a lot of the elders and deacons word got out very quickly and people were trying to you know hunt me down not hunt me down but you know contact me to find out what was going on but I had made up my mind and so back when you're a little bit younger and you realized that you might be gay what would the church have seen of that and how did that affect you because there must have been a lot of guilt around that as well oh yeah homosexuality homosexual desires beliefs thoughts are super forbidden in the, in the church so that was just a that was just a no-go that was just a part of me that I had to completely erase or suppress and it was just for the the betterment there was no if ands or buts about it. When I was in Florida, as a younger person, when I was like 21, 22, I went to stay with a cousin in Florida who was also a witness, but she was not really practicing it, you know, on the surface level she was, but she would take me out to bars. And I had a friend that I messed around with and he was from New York as well, but he was going to school in Tampa. And the guilt and shame from that was overbearing and I, I remember telling and so if you do something like that you have to go to the elders and confess and tell them what you did and then they they meet and they decide you know is this a first time offense or did you have any priors you know kind of like kind of like law system and I remember this one 
elder in, in the hall there was super awesome to me. Like I hung out with his daughter and his, the, the, the son, you know, all early twenties and family kind of adopted me when I first moved there. But as soon as I told him about what happened, like his complete, completely different person towards me. And that, that really stuck out because it came to him in such a vulnerable spot thinking I was going to die and just treated me differently. And when I left Florida and came back to New York, that story had followed me. So when I came back to the congregation, the elders there, Neil, you know, we heard about that incident in Florida and, you know, we're just kind of alluding to the fact that now I wanted to hang out with my friends because I was trying to get them in bed and things like that. I didn't resonate well with that at all. Uh, that's when I knew I was like, this is, this is getting dangerous now. Now you're, you're, you're saying that my, you know, people I've grown up with that were my age, a little younger, that I'm perverted and I want to try to sleep with them. And so that's when I was like, yeah, this is not, this isn't going to work out. Yeah. So, but, yeah. That's interesting that you had that reaction though. Cause I think a lot of people would have been so drowning in the guilt and the shame and everything that they would just be trying to be compliant and continuing on that path. Whereas you seem to have had the strength to just kind of go, well, hold on you mm-hmm. guys. Yeah. This isn't right. Yeah. And, 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 and the, that wasn't just because of, you know, me being a super strong person. It was my brother had left the faith and uh, had gotten divorced, my middle brother, around that time, too, um, when I started thinking about it. And I told him about these things, you know, and he was like, yeah, that's bullshit. Like, the fact that they're even alluding to the fact that you're trying to seduce your friends that you've known since you were a teenager since we came home is kind of you know, perverting. And even if, even if I was trying to, you know, like it's no one's business, you know, like the fact that they're putting these, I don't know, what's the word when you're, when you're imputing bad motives on someone just to make them feel worse. And I remember writing a very strongly worded letter to that elder that said, you know, I'm, I was supposed to come to you in my moment of faith faith being challenged and you were not a shield you made me not trust you ever again because you not only are things like that supposed to be you know when you tell a priest something it's supposed to be confidential and they preach that all the time oh it's confidential yeah let me warn let me warn your your homebody elders where you know where you grew up that you're this pervert that's going to try to sleep with all his friends it's like that i didn't like that at all and so that's when yeah that's when i really started changing my mentality and so it was what four years after that that I was completely done when we made the move and really haven't contacted the people that haven't there's been a couple of people that have tried to contact reach out they would try to do it through my ex-wife and she would realize she's was very cognizant of the fact that I wanted nothing to do with them and was very respectful of it she Mm -hmm. would relay messages from friends but also understood that and they and ironically some of them didn't treat her well either when because you know they blamed her for taking me away from from new york and she's kind of she's kind of funny when she would go back to visit and bring the babies she would go back to the old congregation i I mean not really in a vindictive way but more of like a we have healthy children we're doing fine we don't need to conform the rules i'm a strong christian woman who has faith here are the babies that you've kind of missed out on. I mean, that's, she hasn't really come out and said that's why she does it, but why she's, you know, visited, but I feel like it's a strong statement for sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So we're co-parenting now these two beautiful little ones, you know, now 12 and 10, my daughter's 12 and my son's 10. And they have kind of the background of, of the witness life, but they also know their dad doesn't have anything to do with it. And so they're, they're not pressured one way or the other. So yeah, I think it's the best balance. Yeah, absolutely. And so you obviously got married, had children, divorced, and then at what point did you come out as gay? I came out actually um, six years ago this week. Oh, wow. So I'm Portland, Oregon. Yeah, I just did it on social media. Uh, half the people that knew me were not surprised. Some were like, the hell are you talking about um my parents of course acted like they 
were completely shocked, which they weren't. I, I tried to tell my father when I was 15, I have this, this crazy story when I was 15, you know, witnesses would meet in these weekly meetings and they would meet as a circuit. So congregations would make up a circuit and then the circuits would meet as a district. Well, one year when I was like 14, I was supposed to be, you know, the upstanding youth 14. They wanted me to do an interview at one of these circuit assemblies, which is like 1200 people. I was to get up there with other young people and talk about how I avoid temptation. And, you know, as a young person who abides by Christian rules and I agreed to it, but I had remembered things that I, you know, had done at school and boys I had tooled around with. And I was like, I, I don't know if getting up there and I was more afraid for my soul and kind of lying and just not wanting to feel like a hypocrite. And I remember the day before the morning of, I just remember coming downstairs and my dad was there and I just came unglued and was like, I can't go up there and be this good person. You know, I, I like men. I like boys. I've been filling men up at school and they even filling me up. I'm like, this doesn't feel right getting up in front of a circuit of, you know, the witnesses and saying I'm this person that I'm not. And he was like, oh, just ask ask Joe for forgiveness, you'll be fine. And I was like, oh, okay. It was that easy, okay. And he kind of just said, as long as you're sorry, you're good. And he's like, thanks for telling me, we hugged it out. And I remember hugging him and, and being like, are you sure that you're not getting the message here? Like, I like dudes, like I like men. I don't think he wanted to hear that. I just think he was uh-huh. like, if you feel bad, it's good. So I went up there and and did that. And I remember having a close friend who's still my close friend now in Dallas. Uh, he didn't know uh, the circumstances, but I remember going to his house like that night and we snuck some alcohol. I was like, I was, you know, way too young to be drinking, but I was like, oh yeah, this feels good. This kind of helps <laughs> take the edge off of the day. But I just felt so bad about like, even though my dad said it was, oh, you're good. So something weird about getting up there and pretending like you're this this glowing example when you're up you're up to things you know yeah. so I'm proud of my, I'm proud of myself for speaking out because that took a lot of and yeah. of course the the inner turmoil too I was like you're gonna die if you don't <laughs> you're gonna go you know you're definitely gonna die in Armageddon if you don't say something and so he was approachable he was approachable with those kind of things I would never tell my mom that there's no way in hell but I was like well you know he's downstairs you're up you're not feeling well this is obviously eating at you that whole weekend was just awful before I said anything. So I felt better after telling him, but I didn't feel good still going up there. I kind of wanted an out, you know, mm. but went up there and did it. Yeah. But also you've told your dad something mammoth and he hasn't really acknowledged it. You yeah, know, it's, it was... it's like, well, okay, that's just a thing. Uh, yeah. It's just what did, boy, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> yeah. To him, it was just like, well, yeah, you know, you're, you're young, you're going to want to experiment. I remember him saying that you're going to want to experiment, but that'll pass, you know, that, you know, and, it, you know, part of it is his generation too. You know, he was born in the 40s. Yeah. He was also a hippie at one point, so I'm sure that he had a lot more tolerance around then, but he had found this faith and didn't really want to acknowledge that his one of his sons could could do that. And we've talked about it since then. I remember when I was in Los Angeles, I came out and told him, you know, I was gay. And he's like, oh, is that the big secret this whole time? I'm like, it wasn't a secret. <laughs> You've known this. So I don't know why you're acting shocked. I mean, I told you when I was 15. And just because people get married and have kids doesn't mean that they're not gay. Anybody can reproduce, right? So do the math. So hopefully he'll come around. But if not, at least I hopefully will know that we tried and don't hold grudges. And if... God forbid something happened to one of them and they needed a place to live. Obviously we'd move them up and do the right thing and take care of your, your family. But, you know, it was always not to the detriment of your mental health. So you got to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. As well. So what, what is your relationship like with your parents now? Now it's definitely not good. They, because of the, the, you know, kind of the emotional, and it's odd too, when the kids were born, they were never really around for the births or really around in their lives. And a lot of it had to do with their relationship with my ex-wife and them not respecting her and me taking years to kind of kind of stick up for her and, and say, like, you know, you're not treating her well and she's not going to back down. She's not someone that's going to back down and take your verbal or emotional abuse. 
so they were never really around for for the kids and then after after the divorce they started saying things like we were keeping the grandchildren away from them and that was never the case they were just never around so now it's just like i won't hear from them for a while and then i'll get a random message as to why i'm keeping the kids away from them and when that's not the case we've always they've always been able to facetime and things like that but you know some of the times that that happened they would step out and say well hopefully you know you're your father will return to Jehovah. And the kids were like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't even know you. <laughs> My dad's fine. My little son told him once, he's like, I don't really feel like you love my father because, you know, you don't say good things about him. And we are like, yeah, we're not going to put them in that spot where they're having to say those kind of things or feel like they need to defend me. And so we, yeah, we limit it. If they want to call, there'll be a family member nearby and they don't want to abide by those boundaries but we're not going to put our kids in that kind of emotional stance right now so it's not the best relationship but thankfully i have um my brother and i have aunts and uncles and cousins that aren't witnesses and you know treat us like family so that's good yeah absolutely and i love i love how the grandchildren can come along and say something like that yeah Mm -hmm. I don't like the way you treat my dad. And I just love it. I just love that stuff because it's like the next generation comes along. They don't have any of the stuff surrounding them like you have, but they see Mm -hmm. it so clearly, don't they? Yeah. And and they have their grandmother, my ex-wife's mom in Idaho, and she's very devout uh, Jehovah's Witness, but she not to the level where she's going to be emotionally or mentally abusive so they have a relationship with their grandmother but it's not to the to the level that it would have been with with my parents so they're able to clearly discern you know recently a lot of witness kids are taught to believe that magic witchcraft things like that harry potter disney not to have anything to do with that but sometimes it's come up they've wanted to watch recently we got into WandaVision as a family. It's this Marvel thing and she's a witch and <laughs> there was another witch in it. And they were like, Oh man, I wish there wasn't a witch in it. And I was like, well, your mom's going to let you use your conscience. If you want to watch it, that's fine. I, you know, rang their mother and said, Hey, there's this weird twist in the story. There's a dark witch doing black magic, kind of icky stuff. Even for me, I'm not really, I don't really like it's partly I, grew up not liking it but i just don't always like the supernatural elements as a, as a preference but i'll i'll respect it i'll watch it and she's like okay i'll mention it to the kids but we didn't force or she didn't force them to yay or nay it it was like if you want to watch that that's fine but remember it might bother you and sure enough the kids decided to watch it and they were fine and yeah. i feel like if parents did more of that taught their kids on how to find their own moral compass I feel like things would be a lot easier for when you're an adult and you're not <laughs> having to pay for all this therapy on as to why you're the way you are and so I really respect her for that and yeah. when it comes to their dad being gay my daughter is more aware and understanding of that we don't talk about it much my son's only 10 he doesn't think or you know ask those questions quite yet but you know that's another thing we'll get through uh, down the road when that comes up but but for now it's 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 a good place um you know 30 minutes away every other week and i see them we have a good time they see that their parents are not yelling and screaming and talking about each other behind their back we treat each other with respect and that really that that means a lot because i know a lot of kids of divorce haven't had that experience we we decided early on that we don't want our kids to to pay for our you know, our battles, we wanted to raise them as in unison as possible. Yes. So. Yes. That, that's exactly how it should be. Kids who yeah. are stuck in that with their parents who are fighting for years, it just does so much damage, I think. So because it's really not their problem or their fault, is it? It's not. Yeah. And trust me, there's things that we had to apologize for. There's things that I regret, but it's, you know, 2021 and it's time to move on with things. And I really, they were up in North Idaho first, and the idea was always for me to join being in this area after. But last year, when the pandemic hit, 
I remember calling her my ex and saying, Hey, look, uh, I am not, I'm not doing well. Like it's, it's hit Portland. I'm really scared. I'm having to work remote. I, I just want to come up and be with, with you guys, you know? So I came up for a month and I was staying, um, in the house and she was staying at her mom's and about like week three, we kind of sat down and she's like, what's, what's your plan? You know, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't want to be in Portland alone. This is, it's scary. And you know, the plan was to always be up in this area. And uh, yeah, it was just such a comforting thing. I don't have my parents to rely on, you know, I had my brother, but he, he was in New York at the time. And thankfully he came down for the summer with my niece and spent the summer during pandemic with me and but at the end of the summer is when I decided to move up. And I thought, you know, no one should be alone during this, this time, but it felt so good. To, and that's very rare. I mean, I don't know a lot of people that would call their ex-wives. <laughs> Can I come stay with you? Cause I'm not feeling well in, in this town alone. And yeah, so yeah. that's a relationship we have. And that's something I want to, to cherish. And um, hopefully we can have really good to well-rounded adults that come out of this ready to face, you know, being adults and knowing that they have their parents have their back. Yeah, love it. Love it. So how do you think your childhood has impacted your life journey? Mm -hmm. I would say if anything, my childhood has definitely opened up a ridiculous amount of empathy um, in my life. Um, I know some people don't believe in empaths. I feel like I'm a natural empath. I feel like my mom was at one point. Um, I feel like when I step into situations, I know that people come from a variety of backgrounds and the way people react to things is nine times out of 10 on how they were brought up to believe or environments that weren't in their control. And so it's helped me kind of take a step back and realize that everybody's different and coming from a different place. and. I used to really not trust a lot of people. That was my big thing is I used to pride myself on that. Like, I don't trust people, you know, cut people off if they do me wrong and kind of blacklist them. And I've kind of changed my mindset of, you know, everybody is trying their best. At, and, that, and that's kind of my mentality. And so I think it's helped me realize that everybody has some good in them, even the ones that can't show it or refuse to show it there's there's a good person in there nine times out of ten and so I like to give people the benefit of the doubt and it's really helped me you know in my career as well you know I work in tech for a, a pretty well-known large website company and uh, have found kind of a niche in the tech world being a people manager and managing younger people that come from a different backgrounds and really priding myself on aiding them in their careers and pushing them to, you know, where they want to go and then challenging them when, when things come up. But I really, really enjoy, you know, being a people manager and in the tech sphere. So I think it's paying off, you know, everything I went through is paying off in a good way. Oh, that's, that's awesome that you, you see it that way. And so what sort of mindfulness practices or therapy things that you've done to help you on your healing journey? Uh, I've had an awesome, pretty awesome therapist uh, off and on, but mostly since 2015, who has helped me a lot with um, behavioral modification therapy, being mindful of, you know, counting to 10 before reacting, being really mindful of the environment, really teaching me on, you know, what's really at play here. Why are you really reacting to something? And it's helped me be really mindful of of bias and things like that. There'd, there'd be times when I would meet someone or be in a situation and automatically would not like this group of people or the certain individual or really gravitate towards certain individuals. And nine times out of 10, it was someone that, you know, would remind me, it would remind me of someone I knew or had a bad experience with and being able to learn to separate the past and the future and really focus on the day-to-day. -day. The power of now was one thing she really helped me realize is, you know, is your mindset in the past? Is your mindset, you know, 
focus on the future. You know, what about today? What can we handle today? And so realizing that the past is a memory and the future hasn't happened yet. So it's imagination. What I have is today and, and how I operate and function. And that mentality, when I finally let that sink in, it really helped me, you know, deal with my my day-to-day -day interactions with people. And another thing we also we talked about was not letting your not, you know, never letting, never letting some, never allowing someone else to pay for your pain was another big thing. And I know I used to do that. I used to lash out and be so angry. And, you know, I'm surprised <laughs> in college, especially it was when I, you know, had a hard time making, you know, good, strong relationships. So I was carrying all this like anger and um, angst, but, you know, that's living in the past and fearful for your future. You think, you know, people are going to react the same way. It's not really focusing on the day to day. And so that's, that therapy's really helped a lot is focusing on behavioral modification day to day. And when you start to slip up or things start to sneak in, where's your head at? Is this based on past or, or fear of future? Like you're not really focusing on the day to day. So it's been very powerful for me. Yeah. It's amazing how something so simple can be so powerful, isn't it? Because yeah. it, is quite, it is quite a simple thing, but it's quite hard to actually do that day to day because when you're so used to, I know myself, having a, a brain that just constantly churns on the past, it takes a oh, while yeah. to actually do that. Yeah, once you do it, it's awesome. And are there any books that have really helped you on your healing journey? Ironically enough, and not that I was um, abused physically or um, anything in comparison to this this book but when i read it i identified with the the youngster and it's a nonfiction book called a child called it not sure if you heard of it but it's this nonfiction memoir about a young man who was viciously uh abused on every level especially physically from his mom or stepmom and he's kind of telling it from childhood up and ending it when he has his own kids but I identified a lot with the the shame that he went through in that and the fact that you can come out of it on the other side, kind of shining bright. And um, what really resonated with me was that he always just kind of wanted an explanation as to why his mom treated him like that or singled him out. And a big revelation to him was when he just asked her straight up, you know, in his therapy, why me? And she was able to, in her own way, kind of explain it. And going back to how simple things can be, but sometimes it takes a lifetime to get brave enough to just do the one simple thing really resonated with me. For me, it was just coming out and saying who I was, who I identified with, and, you know, telling my parents, no, no you're not going to treat me this way. You're going to respect my ex-wife. We're going to make the rules on how you interact with the kids. And just saying, no, I don't owe, you know, yes, I, I guess in some twisted way, I owe you my life in, in terms of you had me, you took care of me, but that's what you're supposed to do. That's what parents do. Um, I don't owe you for that. What, what, you, what I do owe is a level of respect, but you also, you know, owe me that as well as an adult. And that book was super powerful read for me. Uh, Toxic Parents is also a very good book. Um, that was one I had to read and put down several times because it just resonated so well. But A Child Called It was, I really recommend it to anyone. And it's full of triggers. So be very mindful of that going into it, but very powerful book. Yeah, sounds like it. So Louise, you are a filmmaker, writer, live storyteller. Tell us what you're up to and where can we find you? Of course. Well, right now, um, I am doing a podcast that just leans into nostalgic television shows. I love talking about that with uh, my producer, Adam Vargas. It's called the TV Time Machine Podcast on Spotify. And the idea there is just to kind of not think too much and talk about old TV shows that influenced us, and then hopefully get some of these producers and writers from these shows to be guests. Uh, I, I used to have a podcast called Lunch with Luis years ago, where I was able to get producers and writers from LA and to come on and talk about their craft and promote their work. Uh, my Twitter is aspiring Luis uh, at aspiring Luis. 
And um, I just acted in a film that Adam Vargas directed called The Afterlife. It's something that we shot in the middle of this chaotic firestorm move. And I'm also writing right now, um, rewriting, working with a producer and writer in LA on a script uh, called Couches. And it's about a young man who basically gets ostracized you know, from his family and, and friends from, from, from leaving a tradition um, and has to couch surf. And so he makes friends just kind of couch surfing, hence the word couches and how he's kind of found strength and realizing that there's more than his upbringing and coming to terms with that and kind of moving on. So I'm taking my time on that, especially because I've had films that never got finished, things like that on the independent level. It's sometimes hard to finish something. And so I really want to focus on finishing and, and doing well and tapping into mentors that'll help me get it to the right spot. So that's what I'm working on now. Sounds awesome. Are you on Instagram too? Yes, I'm on Instagram at the screen kid. So that's T-H-E, the word screen, like movie screen, K-I-D, the screen kid. Yep. And yeah, you can, um, all my links are on that as well. And I upload pictures of, of life up here in Eastern Washington of the dog and the kids and everything I'm up to. That's awesome. Well, Louise, I really enjoyed our chat today. Um, Me too. It's been a really interesting story that you've shared. And um, yeah, I'm really grateful that you would take the time to share it with us. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, I look forward to, to hearing more stories on your show. Thank you so much for being here. Please check the show notes for all the links related to this podcast, including book recommendations. If you have a story to share, questions about this episode, or want to connect in any way, I would love to chat. Please come and find me on Instagram at mybigloveproject. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. Can you think of one person whose life might change a tiny bit in a positive way by hearing this episode? Please go ahead and share it with someone you know needs to hear it. These stories are so important. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.